What is up, my crew? This is the Nook Podcast. My name is Stephen Murphy, and it is so good to have you listening today. Some context for today's episode. I lived in Phoenix, Arizona for most of my life, and I still have such clear memories of the news. When the headlines started to surface about the horrible atrocities coming out of Colorado City, Arizona, and the strange practices of the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints. A community that fiercely guarded its privacy for decades, tonight is the focus of a hearing witnessed by an entire nation. This report from KTVK Channel 3 in Phoenix. Freedom of religion or crime in the name of God? Lawmakers are weighing those heavy questions tonight as they decide whether the United States government should step in and put a federal watch on an Arizona polygamous sect and its notorious prophet. Sexual abuse, underage marriage, and bigamy. This odd cult led by self-proclaimed prophet Warren Jeffs started making headlines in 2004. Needless to say, all that was discovered from that time sent shockwaves through that community and the surrounding area. So many families were torn apart, so many people living with such dark secrets, and now the whole world seemed to be watching. A hearing to address a laundry list of alleged crimes that Reed and other senators now clearly believe are being committed by polygamous sects like the FLDS Church under the leadership of its now incarcerated prophet Warren Steed Jeffs. Warren Jeffs was ultimately arrested and sent to prison for the rest of his life. And while that seemed to mark the end of his tyranny, it also signaled the beginning of what will be a very long season of healing for an area known as Short Creek. Today, I have the privilege of introducing you to Luke and Constance Meredith. Together, they are leading the Short Creek Dream Center, which is actually housed in the former house and compound that Warren Jeffs and the FLDS Church once owned. Just one aspect of the story that I absolutely love. This is an amazing couple who each have their own stories of redemption and are now motivated by God to be part of restoring so many people who have been left questioning everything they were brought up to believe. So settle in for my conversation with Luke and Constance Meredith. My name is Luke Meredith, and I'm the co-executive director of the Short Creek Dream Center in Hilldale, Utah, where we serve the residents of this city with residential support services and community outreach. I'm also a campus pastor at the Dream City Short Creek campus here, where we want to connect everybody with a fully formed relationship with Jesus Christ through relationship and community. And my name is Constance Meredith. I am also the other co-executive director and the better other half. Um, and I am also a campus pastor at the Dream City Church here and the co-executive director of the Short Creek Dream Center, where we help um, stabilize and um, rehabilitate and help people be able to be uh, uh, a member of society after they graduate the program. 
Well, and this is where I think maybe it's an interesting place to start because uh, whatever might come to mind for somebody who is familiar with the typical Dream Center model, uh, is it fair to say that yours might be the most unique there in that Arizona, Colorado area? Yep, absolutely. So Dream Centers are worldwide. There's on just under 300 different dream centers in different places, and they take many forms and shapes. You know, there are some in Africa that are orphanages. There are dream centers that don't have residential programs, and they just do outreach. And so the, the motto being find a need and fill it, find a hurt and heal it, means that any dream center in any community takes the pulse of, of that community's needs so that they can help them in that way. And so the Short Creek Dream Center is definitely very unique. We're, we're nestled in the area of Hilda, Utah, Colorado City, Arizona. And what the area is known for, if you go around the country, would be the FLDS you know, religion that took hold of you know the entire uh, city and the infamous rule of one Warren Jeffs. You know, he's been in prison for some time and there are still some people who are affected generationally, uh, who are affected personally by the things that went on in the town, despite the town as a whole being having this very you know vibrant small town uh, community feel. Constance, can you give some insight as to what family life is like in that post-war in Jeff's world in which you live now? Uh, I would say that that the post-family life is different in every single household. Mm. You know, um, to say that everybody is the same would be would be wrong. But I mean, like there is different. I would say I'd give you a couple examples is that, you know, there are um, it's hard to hard to hard to to decipher like what you do afterwards. You know I mean? If you have, if you, if you have a wife and you have sister and they have sister wives, so you have a couple different wives, like what is your responsibility, you know, as, as the male of, or as the husband of the home, you know, do you disregard all the other wives that you've had and when they, that you have children with, do you reside together? Like, what do you do? And that's like a really, really hard choice for some people. We've talked to some, um, some fathers, and husbands, and they have told us, you know, like that it is their responsibility, even if they don't want to live that life anymore, it's still their responsibility to take care of those women that he said he was going to take care of. And it is his responsibility to take care of those children too. You know, I've heard of um, um, other situations where uh, some of the, he, that the husband has gotten other houses for their wives to live in and they only stayed with their first wife. You know, there's uh, just so many different circumstances and so many different ways that people live in um, in their homes, it would just be hard to be able to narrow it down just to like a basic situation because mm. every situation is very complex and every situation is completely different. Is it fair to say that the area is still shell-shocked all these years later? I mean, I know Warren Jeffs has been in prison for some time now, but having visited that part of the world... It just seems like there's still some reverberations of his departure and the fallout is still happening. Uh, definitely. I would say there's there's still recovery from that era of trauma. You know, 10, 15 years out from a, a traumatic situation isn't all that long if somebody hasn't been dealing with it. And so there are some people who need 
help transitioning out of that still even to this day. And I'd say the community is affected with a high uh, poverty level. And there's the last census data says that the poverty rate in Colorado City proper was 49.9%. And the national average was 11.2%. Wow. So it definitely the systems that were set up and when the church was broken up here, you know, that's what they, they call it well, when I left the church and things like that. When it was broken up, a lot of the elite left with a lot of the resources. Mm. You know, and so a lot of the people that were left here in their homes in the community were left without that. And so the economic recovery is still on the up. The recovery from trauma that varies from family to family is still, you know, working on those kind of things. Um, I can tell you as a, uh, Diagnosed of PTSD myself from going to war, I was in 2007. Uh, I can tell you it's a, it's a long, hard recovery from any traumatic situation. I personally, I kind of hate the saying that time heals all wounds. It does not. Mm. Work heals wounds. You know, therapy, counseling, fellowship, uh, being with people, working on your hurts and hangups, that's what heals wounds. Time won't, helps, but it, it won't do it alone, that's for sure. So that's what we're, we're here for is to provide the work for anybody who's in need of it. Right. And what does it mean to you then to know that you're a part of something that is very committed to being there for the long haul? It's not just a quick weekend mission trip. It's something that has to go for a good long time with exactly what you said, knowing that those traumas and those uh really deep-seated things in that community will take a long time to heal from. It's kind of a funny story. Constance, you want to tell them what I said about moving out of Phoenix when we first started seeing each other? Well, <laughs> Luke did tell me that he would never, when we got married, he said that he would never move out of Phoenix. And <laughs> I just kind of like let him say whatever he was going to say, but I knew better. <laughs> so <laughs> it was... um. But to be here and just, I mean, like our hearts, and that's what's so great about like our relationship is that our hearts are just all for serving and all for helping, you know, being in, I don't, I don't see us doing anything outside of that, you know, because that's where um, we find our passion and mm. what we're really good at because we also went through a time where we had to go through healing and we remember how much it meant to us to have all those people that came alongside of us and helped us through our healing and helped us through um, the trials and tribulations that we were going through. So to know that we um, are this are the people that people count on, it means the world to us and we cherish it and we also honor it and we want to be respectful and we want to honor that trust and we want to be there for people as much as people were there for us. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's a good place for us right now to kind of look back. I just, I don't think that you wake up one morning and go, hey, let's be a part of something in a hurting area of Arizona and Utah. Uh, I know just enough of your stories to be dangerous, but, you know, maybe Luke, we could start with you and you, you already mentioned yeah. your, your PTSD yeah. and uh, some of what you had yeah. obviously started with your time in the military. Um Give me some insights into what that time of your life looked like. I can tell you that I, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, poor. Um, my mother was addicted and on drugs as long as uh, back as I can remember. Mm. And we were hungrier than we should have been as a family, as, as children. And I was kind of, um, I think, willfully oblivious and just 
wanted to move through life to the next chapter, be happy, and didn't know what that was. But when I was in high school, a friend of mine approached me and he, um, I was on my own. I had moved out when I was 16 and was fending for myself. And my, a friend of mine approached me and said, hey, I think I want to join the military. I just had a recruiter come to my uh, classroom. And I was like, are you, are you dumb? Why would you do that? You know, this is the way I thought when I was, when I was a kid, I was like, that's crazy. And so I went to the recruiter's office to make sure he didn't get finagled and to, you know, try and convince him not to join. And I ended up listening to the recruiter and I ended up joining. Uh, he didn't, by the way, he backed out, but <laughs> funny enough, I was listening to, you know, the promises of adventure and, you know, the resources and things like that. And I knew that being 18 and being a shift manager at Taco Bell um, wasn't going to get me where I wanted to get in life. Yeah. And so I ended up uh, joining and for getting the, the resources for the college money. And honestly, it was, it was one of the best choices of my life, the, the camaraderie, the experience. And uh, I wouldn't trade it even for for anything in the world even considering you know the things i went through or experienced so uh, i joined for the college money and and to have some resources and then war happened mm. and so and when the towers were struck and everything kicked off in afghanistan in 2001 it, it wasn't until 2004 that i was actually deployed from my duty station to go to iraq and i was stationed in a small town called al-qaim it was on the syrian border and we were there basically to try and stop the, the militia weapons trafficking activity between Iraq and Syria, you know, that was supporting, you know, the Iraqi uh, uh, insurgent forces and things at the time. So there, there was a good bit of action there. Uh, luckily, my post that I was at was a little bit out of town. So we would get mortar fire, but I wasn't running through town under, you know, small arms fire. My unit was very much like a, a mash. You know, if you've seen the old show, MASH, we had tents set up and they brought in casualties on helicopters usually. And we would take care of them, you know, in some pretty advanced equipment. We had a very forward operating emergency and surgical setup. And what that what that equaled, though, was on a, on a smaller base, you know, maybe 1,300 people. I, I knew these people. I knew, you know, a lot of them. And um, this is like the, the size of a good size high school, you know, mm. and all these uh, Marines and, and sailors on this base. And so I would eat breakfast with people who came in on the helicopter later that day. And we didn't save all. Of them. Mm. And it was hard because that was our job. Yeah. And so for us to feel like we we're doing our job, we felt bad. You know, we felt pretty, pretty angry, sad, uh, guilty. Whenever we lost one of these, one of our, our brothers and sisters in arms, you know, um, so that's what started my my experience of trauma. One, just seeing people go through this, you know, just seeing these things happen and the mess, and um, and then not being able to to save every one of them. It took a long time to deal with what they call survivor's guilt, mm. and it had a lot to do with coming to Christ. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. I wasn't a Christian when I deployed overseas. I didn't have a church family. I didn't have a relationship with Christ or God to, to lean on. So, of course, I didn't deal with these things, you know, in a healthy way. And so when I first got out of the military, I had my nursing license. Um, I started diverting medications from work. 
And I started dabbling more and more in opiates. And eventually I wasn't a nurse anymore because of it. Mm. And then I was doing street drugs and I added methamphetamines. And so I was using meth, you know, IV meth and heroin, uh, putting it in the same syringe and wow. shooting that up three, four or five times a day. Uh, I had three heart attacks before I was 26 years old. Oh, wow. And I just kept going because at that point, you know, why, why stop? And it wasn't until I got myself in some trouble and landed at the Phoenix Dream Center to go through a program. They told me it was a six-month program. And I said, these fools got 30 days and I'll, I'll be good. I'm out of here. Mm. Um, six months later, I'm graduating the program with a newfound identity. Mm. And that's where my recovery comes from. That's where my sobriety and my you know success that I have now in, in working in ministry, which is just a huge humbling blessing to be doing what we're doing all that came from learning who i was and not arguing with god anymore about who i was it was you know i'm, I'm valuable i'm a son and not a slave yeah. i'm I, I deserve treating myself better you know because that's what god wants from me and so walking in that helped me fight off you know the addiction and the urges and the depression and trauma recovery and all these things and and the the long road of fighting through all that um, and having people surrounded me that believed in me, that ministered to my potential, not my problems. That's what got me to a good and stable and sober and God-loving place that I'm in now. Well, and that's where you met this amazing wife of yours, Constance. What was your story in that, uh, that intersection um, well, before I, I also went through the church on the street program at the dream center in Phoenix. And, um, I, at a very, very young age, you know, I dealt with, um, I'm half black and I'm half white. So I dealt with a lot of, um, uh, unacceptance from, because I wasn't one way or another. Um, and so I dealt with a lot of not belonging, um, and not fitting in anywhere. So that kind of led to me wanting to find out where I did fit in and where I did belong and the misfits and the troublemakers, you know, I fit in there because I knew how to cause trouble and I knew how to um, disobey the law. Mm. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's where I found my comfort and where I found a sense of belonging at the time. And I ended up getting into a lot of trouble, a lot of troubles, law enforcement and going into, um, uh, well, at a minor age, of course, but, um, and doing like a lot of things that I shouldn't have been doing. And it was just because I just didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I wanted to be. And, uh, um, eventually I, um, I, ha I ended up at the, at the dream center and I started going through that program and I started finding out, you know, like what my purpose was and what I was put on this earth to do. Mm. And I went through the program and then I went out on the streets um, from 10 o'clock at night until two o'clock in the morning, just ministering and talking to girls that were in active sex work. And I fell in love with working with human trafficking survivors and, mm. um, and just giving them hope for what the future could be for them. Because, you know, I mean, like I didn't have hope and the dream center believed in me. And so I wanted to give that back and just to find out how powerful giving somebody hope is and not mm. judging somebody and coming alongside somebody just gave me the, the strength and the power to be able to 
be the example for some people of like, yeah, you can come out of the muck and the mire and you can do something and you can be something with your life. Mm. If you choose to be, you just have to have some people that believe in you to, and just so you can start believing in yourself just as much. And um, I became the, uh, I became the uh, outreach director for that outreach. And then I became a caregiver and then the director of that program um, that worked with human trafficking survivors and um, then became the chief programs officer of the dream center. Uh, and I was so passionate about it. I also joined the mayor's task force and I was the chairman of the subcommittee for victim service providers in Phoenix um, with, which uh, works with other, um, other, organizations to help find best practices and what would be best to are in collaborating with Homeland Security and the FBI and other local law enforcement organizations just to help with um, the collaboration of finding out what would be best for people that had been in a human trafficking um, situation and how to help them to achieve their goals, to give them hope and to find the best practices and best services to come alongside of them. Mm. And then I ran into this guy <laughs> and he, uh, you know, and he was like, oh, I got to have her. And I was like, and I told him, <laughs> I told him, I said, you, are you really ready to jo join, to, to join, to join with me? Because I sometimes will get up at two o'clock in the morning and have to go on a rescue to pick up a girl. And I'm like, and I, um, if you're not for that, you and I are not for each other because that is my passion. And that is what I know that I'm called to do. Um, so, but he really came alongside in a huge way. And that was what I was really looking for was somebody that was going to be able to do life with me and, um, and have the same passions and the same hurts for hurts that I did. And I found that. When she told me that her heart was, you know, the girls in the program, you know, one, I, I admire that. I always tell her she's, you know, one of my heroes. She's so selfless in giving her time and, and helping, you know, touching so many lives. When she told me that was her heart as, you know, the girls in the program, uh, I then used them in my uh, engagement proposal, which I thought was pretty smooth. Mm. Hey, <laughs> nice. Good hook. Well, so then is there a way for you to even capsulize what it means to the both of you to come from such checkered pasts and then experience such a mind-blowing redemption and then be able to turn around in the now where you're in this area that needs that redemption, that needs that same hope that was shown to you. Uh, how did that fill your tank back then to now fuel you into what you're doing now? I think one of the ways that it, it catalyzes what we do now is having the past that we do. Um, when she says, Hey, I got, I got to, I got to run out at one to go, you know, on a rescue or to go help somebody like I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been in desperate, horrible situations where nobody came at one in the morning for me. Mm. And so I'm in, full support you know and we know that of each other when we're going when we're about to go to a family dinner and i'm like babe someone's in a spot we we got to put it off i got to go to someone's house yeah and, and sit and talk with them which it's, it's okay like we we understand and we'll we catch up on the family time of course but um having those those backgrounds helps and it's it's amazing to be in the in the situation that we are where we both overcome and that we can 
have those backgrounds and, and be together as partners and not projects for each other. Mm. Uh, uh, I think God has, has brought us through what he did and brought us to what he did, you know, so that we could be you know, more powerful for him in, in what we're doing, you know, just to, to reach and to, to help people. Right. Well, and it's obvious that by being there and so uh, with those goals of being so deeply attached to the community, that those that's the place where those relationships are going to be built uh, and and expounded on. Um, can you talk about the relationships that you're able to build where you are uh, and what God is doing within those things? Um, yeah. you know, in the now and even, you know, kind of what does that look like long-term? Yeah. So I, I, um, I'm one of those people that like, I, people either like really love me or they really hate me. And I hardly ever get to the really hate me, um, <laughs> just because I'm very loud and bubbly and I'm just me, you know, and I'm okay with who I am because God has told, showed me who I am and who, um, and that person that I am gets in places that normally people don't get into. So, um, and it's just because I just, I just love, you know, I mean, like I build relationships when people meet me, I'm really genuinely wanting to get to know them. I don't want to get to know their story. I don't want to get to know their past. I want to get to know who they are and find out how I can be of assistance and be an actual friend to them and help build them up. And my whole goal is just to be able to be that friend that is like the definition of friend, mm. you know, that builds you up, that calls you out when you're doing things wrong, that um, empowers you to do things, that tells you when things that shouldn't be happening the way that they're happening. Like my whole goal is to be the best person I can for the people that I meet. And being that, um, I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I'm fleshy. I have some, I have some issues sometimes, but. <laughs> I've never, I've never seen, never seen it. I have that righteous <laughs> indignation thing that when I see somebody getting treated wrong, I get mm. super upset and I like you start crying and all kinds of stuff because I just can't stand when people are mistreated. Mm. But um, when uh, when we get to be able to go and talk to some of these different people, it just makes me um, it fills my cup up not only and I mean that sounds like a little selfish, but it fills my cup up. But it also lets me know that you know like I'm not here for me. I'm mm. not on this earth for myself. I'm here on this, on this earth to be able to glorify God and to be able to do the things that he's called me to do. And I know that if I'm doing that, then I can't go wrong. Like I, I listened to a sermon on Sunday that told me about, you know, like you need to put your stake in the ground and move forward. And if it doesn't matter who's going to talk about you or who's going to follow you, it matters what God's called you to do. And that's what you need to do. And so um, that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm putting my stake in the ground and I'm moving forward and doing what God's told me to do. And because um, he's the one that I'm here for. I'm not here for myself. I'm not even here for my husband, you know, <laughs> in a way. You know, I mean, of course, I am. Yeah, Newsflash, Luke. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're here to serve God. Amen. Well, Luke, that there is something I wanted to make sure that I touched on because uh, it, again, having visited there, something that that became just a stark wow for me is that as you're dealing with these uh, folks coming out of that FLDS with all their traumas and uh, things that I'm sure that they haven't even identified in some instances, um, but yet we you can't even use our language to talk about god to talk about 
the father to talk about, again, things that I just view as bedrock 101 stuff that we believers know, because all those terms have been perverted and tainted. Um, What is it like dealing with maybe a, a family that's just coming out of it, know they need help or rescue. Um, but you've got to really pick and choose how you even talk to them. Definitely. So there, there's a trauma informed approach to our language here. And that's a interesting thing to just put around simple, like you said, simple religious language, like God, Jesus, uh, prayer, sin, salvation, uh, pastor, things like that, you know, uh, here around the dream center, I don't have pastor on my business card or anything like that. I'm just Luke and I, I want to help, you know, mm-hmm. um, cause there's a very different, you know, feel for that. What I, what I like to say is that we have a similar vocabulary, but they have a different dictionary. Mm-hmm. So we'll use the same word, but it means something different. And this even is true of, you know, Protestant Christians and, you know, Latter-day Saints. You know, there's a different definition of God and Jesus and things like that. So you, you got to build a relationship with somebody to where they want to hear about what you've got, or at least to the point where you have a, enough of a relationship that they'll talk about the differences in things hmm. um, and talk about that, you know peaceably and things. But when, when a family or someone comes in, it's all about the good Samaritan approach. You know, um, one of the things that, that we talk about here is that the good Samaritan did not ask, you know, what creed or religion that the guy laying on the ground was. Mm. He just reached down, picked him up, paid for his stay at the end, you know, carried him on his own, you know, uh, right. And, and just took care of the guy without asking any of that that builds relationship yeah. and there's a point you know you know there it is something to share there, there people are very aware that we're christian they're they're very surprised how much we care about relationship mm. be you know before um getting someone to the center prayer. I, I came up in a you know a pentecostal church a church a assemblies church with a pentecostal background i'm i'm just as much you know for the meet somebody and get them to the sinner's prayer in 10 minutes on the bus ride in, a, in Metro Phoenix, you know, uh, as anybody else, like, cool, that's a win, man. You know, hopefully, you know, that was a moment for them and they, they received Jesus and all this, but um, they have been, you can't even call it Bible thumped. They, yeah. They've been religiously abused here. Mm. And when someone's told that, you know, their sister being taken away from them at 14 years old and married to a 70 year old man is the will of God in their life. And they were told this as a child. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of work to undo before using that same vocabulary. Yeah. Well, in Constance, I'd love to get your take uh, because I know how much you love to basically brag of, on the aspect of, you know, what Satan intended for evil, God can use for good, and that we can't discuss this stuff without acknowledging that you're set up in Warren Jeff's old house. <laughs> and to me, maybe that's where I get almost snippy of kind of a Take that, <laughs> you, you toad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> just talk a little bit about what you've noticed, or I mean, could you can you describe even what does it mean in the community that you are set up where you are and doing the work that you're doing? 
Right. I mean, I think it's absolutely amazing. You know, I think that um, we, when we first received this house, I mean, there was a lot of old stuff still in here and um, we wanted to turn it around. Like you said, like what was meant for evil is now turned around and meant for good. Um, We've remodeled almost the whole house. You know, I, I think there's only like maybe one or two rooms that haven't been remodeled because we just want it to say, we want people to see something new. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, you can turn around something that was ugly and make it pretty again. You know, you can turn around something that was e that was meant for evil to turn it around for something that's good. You can turn around people that did horrible things in their life in their past, and they can turn it around and make a huge difference in other people's lives mm -hmm. and help other people to flourish into ways that they never thought were possible. So. I mean, like, I'm a firm believer in, like, when people say, like, I, I don't know, they tell me that, you know, like, uh, one girl had texted me earlier today, and she's like, I'm a failure. And I was like, you are absolutely not a failure. Mm. I mean, like, we can accept fault for where we are, but you would never be a failure because failure is accepting defeat and not getting back up. Yeah. We get back up and we are fighters and we are going to continue to fight. And that's one thing that I love about this community is that every single one of these people are so absolutely resilient and they are fighters. And so being in this house, you know, it's hard because like you have some people that um, I mean, well, it's basically anywhere. So everybody has their own thoughts. You have people that are positive about things. You have people that are negative about things. But when you're in a small town, it magnifies. Yeah. So you have some people that are really grateful and some people that are really appreciative. Actually, most people are grateful and appreciative, you know, and then, of course, you have a couple people that are that don't like the fact that we do have the house. Um, but I mean, like to be, to be um, as open and honest as possible is that we weren't awarded the house. His 65th wife was awarded the house and right. she wanted, her dream was to make this house a dream house without even meeting us. Mm -hmm. She wanted to be called the dream house. And it just so happened that God ordained and or um, a meeting between the dream center and, um, and, and Brielle for us to meet up and just be able to, to help complete her dream. Yeah. So this facility was her dream and what she wanted it to be. So to be a part of what she wanted in her dream is just absolutely, absolutely magnificent and magnificent and just a blessing for all of us. Yeah. Well, and again, with the, with the aspect of, of knowing the heart of the place and that you are there for the long haul, um, how can people help? That maybe somebody listens to this, it's the first time that they're even uh, aware that something like this is happening where you guys are, uh, and they're just motivated to get involved. What does that look like? They can visit shortcreekdreamcenter.org, and there's a Get Involved tab. You know, there, there are ways to reach out to us, contact us, um, anything from put us on your prayer list to um, if you'd like to become a monthly donor. Uh, you know, $5 a month can get more uh, therapeutic toys for our children's counseling, you know, even mm -hmm. things like that. You know, so that's a great place to go, shortcreekdreamcenter.org. Uh, check out our social media, share the stories, you know, share what we're doing here. Yeah, we have also have lots of service, uh, lots of projects that are inside the house for serving our residents that, you know, that um, if you reach out to us, we can definitely send you a bigger list of like, those projects that we need done within this house to keep mm -hmm. this house going the way that it is. Um, so there's definitely those ways to get involved. There's also, you can also send mission trips out here. Mission trips are, we have a mission, we have a separate house that's just for uh, mission groups. So there's definitely ways to be able to come out here and serve and get into the community and help serve the community. 
Um, so there's so many ways to get involved. If you don't see it on there, then make sure that you contact myself or contact Luke. Um, and we'll be able to get you to find out what you would like to do and what your group would like to do or your church would like to do. And then we can help out with designing something that's specifically for what you guys would like to do. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you thought we might or just anything else? I always like to have a little bit of time if there's just anything else that you want to share. Uh, this is this is the time for it. Yeah, I think that I, we would like for people to know that, you know, we're definitely not for exploiting what had happened here. We, um, in order to see how far this town has come, you have to be able to tell the history. Mm. So this town has come so far in the 15 years that it has, like so far, but that doesn't mean that it's not over. That means that they're still going to continue to grow and there's still going to be change and there's still going to be things that are, um, that we can be able to help out with. But I just want, I wanted people to know that that's, uh, that's 100% not our goal. Our goal is to be able to get people to come alongside of us, to be able to help us out with keeping moving forward and not staying in the past. This is another one of those times when I really hope that this podcast sparks you, dear listener, to do your own research. Look into what's happening at the Short Creek Dream Center and consider getting involved. I can tell you from firsthand experience that they are making a huge difference in the lives of hurting people. And for me, perhaps the best part is that they are committed to being there for a really long time, always ready to find a need and fill it, find a hurt and heal it. I've got a link to the Short Creek Dream Center in the show notes, along with a link to the Nook Facebook page and my social media feeds. And I'm always reachable by email. The address is stephen at nookpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you here next time in the Nook. The Nook Podcast is a production of Sozo Digital Media.